I'm Mark Gunnery, producer for Future City, and you're listening to a special podcast extra for this month's episode. I'm here with Erica Bridgeford. She's the co-founder of Baltimore Ceasefire 365, an anti-violence organization in Baltimore. Hi, Erica. Hi, Mark. How did Ceasefire get started? Well, it was a dream in somebody's head for a while. Um, So there's a guy named Ogun. In 2015, he came to me to talk about his idea to have a ceasefire in the city where there would be two days, I think he wanted, like a weekend or at least one day where everybody just knew it's a ceasefire this particular time. But he didn't know how to do it. And then a few years later, um, in 2017, My son told me that the murder rate was higher than it had ever been. So I got angry about people not calling a ceasefire who had street connections. And so I remembered that Ogun had the idea already. And in my heart, there was also this piece where people would just be celebrating life all over the city. And um, and so that's really how it got started. So what's really interesting about it is that in both instances, it came out of pain and frustration. So Ogun came to me with the idea because what was happening at that time, it was after the Baltimore uprising and Baltimore hit 300 murders that November. And we were at a 300 men march meeting. There was a state of emergency meeting. And that's where he came to me to talk about it. And that was the same thing that happened to me later, right? That I was like, this can't be, you know, happening. And so um, from that pain and frustration, it was born. How do you go about organizing one? It is a movement that functions off of people's will and self-determination. So the goals are really simple. We, we get flyers and posters. We now have brochures, too. We ask people to come and pick up as many free flyers and posters as they want and to put them everywhere and to tell three new people a day about the next ceasefire weekend and to also talk to people about what things are happening in their lives so that we can help each other address the root causes of violence by connecting each other with resources that we need. And so we also tell people to celebrate life however they want to. And so as long as there's something, you know, peaceful and not harmful to anybody else. (laughs) And so um, people plan all kinds of life affirming events. They let us know about it and we put it on the public calendar. And so we have public meetings in between. We organize our own outreach. But that's really what it is like. it, It has it has the momentum that it has gotten so far in just a quick amount of time because of hundreds of people all over this city decide that it belonged to them. So you mentioned the root causes of violence. What do you think are the root causes of violence in Baltimore? So historically, the root causes of violence have come from oppression. Like that's the header, right? That's the umbrella. Um, and so within violent systems of oppression, what you're going to see is people reacting to poverty, joblessness, Underemployment, I think we don't talk about that enough. We'll say joblessness, but we don't realize that even if you're employed, you know, like a job at McDonald's doesn't really pay your rent and help you take care of one child in real life. Um, And blight in, in, in Baltimore, our education system, we know children in, in Baltimore's education system don't get the same quality education, and especially depending on where you live in the city. 
access to healthy fruits and vegetables, which you need to feed your brain so that you can make good problem-solving decisions when you're facing conflict, right? So all of those kinds of things are the root causes of violence. And even incarceration is a cause of violence. So we know that trauma makes you more likely to be violent. And when you have someone in your home who's snatched away and incarcerated, it is now a trauma. Um, and so especially when, when all of the things that I just named are happening in your development And I think we a lot of times talk about children not understanding that your brain isn't fully developed until you're like 25 or something crazy. So really, like if you're 25 and under and facing any of these things, these are very adverse kinds of traumas that you're dealing with. It impacts your decision making and your ability to respond with emotional intelligence or even your ability to notice your own greatness and that your life matters more than what you see around you a lot of times. You mentioned trauma. How does trauma factor into the work that you are doing? And how do you think it should factor into the work that Baltimore City is doing around stopping violence? Yeah, so um, in my daily work, I train people in conflict management and mediation. And the model that we use is called the inclusive model and it's focused on non-judgment. So being with people while they're in their conflicts and creating a space where they don't feel judged by the mediators and are able to make their own decisions. And that's really important. Important because what we know is that being understood is literally a biological necessity, that when we don't feel understood, we kill ourselves and each other just because of how the brain works. And so having a safe space to resolve our conflicts is really important. So that's a huge part of my work. It's a confidential space so people can talk about whatever their conflicts are really about and they can resolve them um, peacefully and come up with plans that work for them. Um, and then in the ceasefire work, a huge way that we address trauma is giving people hope and nurturing our self-efficacy, right? So the hopelessness often comes from this feeling of, I am in situations that are drowning me. They're way bigger than me. There's nothing I can do about it, right? So I can't do anything about where I was born, what zip code I live in, what schools I have to attend, all of the parents I have, all of that kind of stuff. And so often we can feel just like victims of our circumstances. And so a big goal is to remind people that if there's something in this world, and especially directly in your community that you don't like, Any little thing that you do can help to heal it. And so find what that one thing is that's calling you and start doing that thing in your city. And so and the more and more we do that, things are going to get better over time. It injects hope into the city. Trauma makes us feel like victims, whereas hope with action behind it reminds you of your power. And so in the space of feeling powerful, we just want to nurture each other's greatness, right, and nurture each other's light um, and even honor each other's darkness. Because a lot of times, even in your dark places, that's where you grow. um, That's where you find out that you're resilient. And we, we need to build compassion around each other's dark places as well. So what kind of support do the loved ones of homicide victims need? Oh, so as a homicide survivor myself... I think what we need varies 
you know. So everybody needs love. Everybody needs support. But but what that actually looks like to the person is going to be different. So one thing that I learned is that you got to really listen to people. Don't say things like, oh, it'll get better with time. Time heals all wounds. Like my brother has been dead since 2007. And I wouldn't say that it's gotten better. I'll, I think it's gotten more real to me that he's really never coming back. I think that it's important to listen to people and to so that when they tell you what they need, that you are doing that and not trying to do what you think they need, not trying to rush anybody through their grief process. We absolutely need safe spaces to process our grief. So really good grief counseling um, that includes not just talk therapy, but also different kinds of art therapy. What we also know about the brain is that we don't process trauma in the same space in our brain where we have have language so often that kind of pain you don't have words for it but music and colors and you know that dance all of that kind of thing helps you work through things when you can't find words so those kind of things uh, different kinds of therapies are important one thing that we do is go to places where people have lost their lives to violence and we bless those spaces so I really believe in energy and um, I understand energy as a scientific thing that can be measured and when murder happens there is that energy of hatred and confusion and whatever right took place in that moment that energy is and then ultimately murder which I don't know if there's a darker energy in the world than murder right and so when that happens in a neighborhood Everybody and every living thing is absorbing that energy. And until something else comes to transform it or replace it or cleanse it. And so since as humans we cause this kind of pain, I think it's our responsibility to then help each other heal over that kind of pain. So we show up at places where people have been murdered and we claim it as sacred ground. So we burn all kinds of medicines, sage, frankincense, camphor, different kinds of things that are known to cleanse energies and to physically cleanse spaces as well. And then we talk to people in the neighborhood. We hug people. We, you know, people ask to be prayed over or blessed or saged. We do all of that. People invite us into their homes to sage their entire house. People just want to be loved. And so the fact that you didn't know the person who got killed and we still showed up, you know, and in the neighborhood to give love, that really means a lot to people. And it, it makes people realize that other people in the city do care about what's happening. You mentioned that people's brains don't finish developing until their mid-20s. How should that knowledge inform how the city and the police interact with young people washing people's windows with squeegees, for example? Oh, don't get me started on the squeegee boys. Yes. So one big dilemma I think that happens in society is that people treat children a as if children aren't people right we we treat children as property often as things that should just listen and obey whether we are right or wrong and no matter how they feel about it so we we forget that children are feeling complex nuanced beings just like adults are, right? But also we forget how 
young children actually are you know like there's some processes that you don't fully have yet so that ways that you can't respond and I think adults trigger young people a lot we in our tone of voices we are disrespectful to children we don't honor their humanity a lot of times when we're talking to them and especially authority figures teachers police officers parents we often dismiss children will say things like oh you too young you don't know nothing about that what you upset for you know oh you in love you don't know nothing about love but they do have emotions like where do we think you don't just suddenly start feeling when you're 30 you know like there you feel a whole lot of stuff way before then I think that really understanding brain science and brain development it would just become common sense to actually listen and work on understanding when you're dealing with young people, to learn what are the strategies that help to de-escalate, because often we use, even in a tone of voice or our word choice, the way your brain is processing it as is a threat to your sense of well-being. And so you react in either a fight, flight, or freeze mode. And in Baltimore, young people start a lot of times at fight. Right. Because there's a survival thing that's going on. And so it would just be common sense to take into consideration what's actually happening in the human brain, but especially uh, where young people are in their brain development. There would be a lot more compassion and understanding and de-escalation instead of triggering our young people. So you um, work as a community mediator? That's right. What are some of the skills that you are sharing with people that you're working with that you think are necessary for being able to mediate conflict and have conversations? It's one thing I love about my work as a mediator and a trainer is that specifically as a trainer, I'm always learning from people that I'm teaching. And so one of the first things to understand is that just the possibility that you might not be right in the middle of a conflict, right? So like, it is possible that the other part or that both of y'all are right or that right is really subjective, you know? And I think we often assume what people mean especially in when we have an ongoing relationship with somebody. So you get five words in, and I'm already like, mm, I know where Mark is going with this. I've heard this, but right? And that's what your brain actually does. It holds on to information to try to predict what's going to happen in the future. And so really listening to people's, what feelings they're expressing is one thing we really teach. So when... Um, people know that you understand the feelings that they're expressing. They feel heard and validated, which helps them to calm down. When you recognize what someone values, so even if they're calling you a liar and you're, you're understanding, okay, so this honesty is what this person is looking for. They want authenticity. And then asking questions Okay, so what makes you think I'm lying? You know, like open-ended kinds of questions. What we know is that when you ask questions that people can only answer yes or no to, right? This is a really simple thing, but it triggers everybody, right? So if it's a question that you can only answer yes or no to, it automatically makes people feel defensive. So, for instance, if I come home and I say, Mark, did you wash the dishes yet? You already feel like... (laughs) 
I'm on you, but that I've assumed you didn't wash the dishes. And what have you been doing if you didn't wash the dishes yet, right? And so if you did wash the dishes, you're going to answer me with like, yes, I did. Now what, right? And if you didn't, that's more than a yes or no answer. You want to be understood about why you didn't get to it yet. But the question already put you in a box that you have to answer yes or no. And so just asking questions that work more at like they come from a curious place than a place of I've already made a decision. And that's where I'm ask, asking my question from mm-hmm. is really huge. All of these skills help us to judge each other less and to notice that My anger generally and my pain about something you did is directly tied to how much I judge you for whatever you did. So even me working on understanding you helps my own peace. So ceasefire is led by women. How? (laughs) That's funny. There's some men involved. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So on the ceasefire squad, we call ourselves six organizers. There are four women and two men. Okay. Mm -hmm. But women are central to Uh, this organizing. Um, How does that? I guess uh, that that would be me too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how (laughs) does that affect your organizing around violence? That's really interesting. So I can say for me, I am a woman surrounded by men my entire life. I'm the only girl. I had three brothers, mostly boy cousins. And I'm often told, I'm not completely sure what this means, but I'm often told that I act like a boy. I get sometimes what people mean by that. And I do think that my level of compassion, my level of patience, Um, I'm not socialized to hunt, right, and get straight to fixing and problem solving. I'm socialized to nurture and to listen. We're going to get to the solution, but not if we don't untangle how we got here. Mm -hmm. And so that might take time, right? So that gives me a certain kind of patience. So I definitely think that there's something in the way that I'm socialized as a woman and just naturally in my womanhood I am still a fierce protector and so nobody can come for Baltimore on my watch. I haven't given a lot of thought to my womanhood. Most people, not most people, but a lot of people are often surprised when a woman is a strong voice that's not easily knocked over, right? So often in the history of activism, there are men out front, and then you find out all the work the women were doing in the background. And so to have a movement in Baltimore's history where you see the women front and center making the thing move, and it's our hearts exploding all over the city, giving it the values and the the way that it moves, um, along with men, that is not something that society is used to seeing. It's not something I give a lot of thought to because I'm very sure of just who I am and what my purpose is. And for me, having one hand and being black stand out, like they kind of guide me a lot of times more than even my womanhood does, Mm -hmm. I think. So it is the fact that I look broken because I have one hand that helps me understand 
Baltimore and the way that it looks broken and what it needs to show up in its wholeness, right? So it's things like that that I connect with more in the work. I know people have like written think pieces about me and all, all of that kind of stuff. So I think it's fascinating to people that I'm a little short woman from West Baltimore with one hand, but I haven't really thought a lot about what it means that women are at the forefront of this movement. Last question. What do you think Baltimore needs to, as you say, show up in its wholeness? Oh, that's so such a loaded question. I'm going to use like what I do in my personal life. Right. So when you have a negative narrative about yourself and you give faith to that narrative, that's the experience you're going to have. And so as long as we say things like be more murder lane and you know, just throw the whole city in the trash and what's so what's wrong with Baltimore when we really don't think about what has happened to Baltimore. The average person who's talking trash about this city doesn't understand that where this city is right now, it has been throughout Baltimore's history, it has been planned to end up this way, right? And so we have to catch ourselves having low self-esteem. Right. Because what's really amazing about Baltimore is we have like the grit and I don't think we say swag anymore, but (laughs) but we have like a certain way that we move. You know, like I I like to use the example of when um, the Confederate statues were coming down. Nobody showed up in Baltimore to say anything to (laughs) us. You know what I'm saying? We just took them down and dared somebody to come say. Right. So there's this weird like dichotomy that we have where we know we are not the ones to mess with, but we will talk so much trash about ourselves at the same time. And so, like, I think a huge part of it is, like, just changing our minds about who we are slowly but surely and nurturing the beauty that we are more and more, the power, the dopeness that we are more and more. Because once you begin to believe in your own greatness, You walk like it, you talk like it, you look for it in other people, and you create it in your circumstances and situations. And that mindset helps you to problem solve and to figure out what the way forward needs to look like. That's Erica Bridgeford, co-founder of Baltimore Ceasefire 365. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Gunnery, producer for Future City, and you've been listening to a podcast extra for this month's episode. Thanks for listening.